0: Hello, everyone. This is Chris Gettle, and I'm here with Daniel Spicer, and we are starting a whole new year of the Avanti Insights podcast. So for those of you who were on our December, our last December episode, and are aware, Adrian has left the Avanti team. We will miss him, and we're going to carry on and try to make this uh, worthy of what he helped us build. So uh, thank you, and uh, we wish you luck, Adrian. But going forward, we're going to continue to to drive interesting conversations and good quality uh, podcast content for you guys here. Kicking it off, start of the year, we wanted to talk about, well, maybe one of those things that we wish we could have forgotten about uh, from last year that causes us all a lot of headaches. But we're going to start by talking this year about Apache Log4j, the vulnerabilities that uh, have cropped up there some of the challenges that many of us experienced. We're gonna kind of tackle it in a couple of different ways. First, we're gonna talk about the vulnerability itself. So Daniel, let, let's kind of recap the the Log4j, the vulnerability itself, uh, the exploits that were out there and just give us the details about what this thing
1: was. Yeah, absolutely. So Log4j is managed and, and maintained by the Apache Foundation. And it is a, a widely used library for logging in Java applications. So Java as a language by default has very simplistic controls over logging, and they're just not sufficient for a lot of our more complex use cases. So Log4J kind of helps augment uh, that, that baseline functionality. And real quick, we'll, we'll start out of the gate. Log4J is a development library that can be included in any application that is is using Java. And while it is uh, supported by the Apache Foundation, it has nothing to do with Apache's web server. It's It's an independent project underneath the foundation. So most developers who are developing a Java application uses open source libraries to help build their applications very quickly, and Log4j being a very common one of those because it gives them all that necessary logging functionality so they can report things like login events and uh, error messages. Well, what happened is in early December, a vulnerability was discovered in Log4j and kind of (laughs) announced in a very unusual way uh, involving uh, Minecraft, uh, the video game. But essentially, what we discovered is if you could present a a maliciously crafted error message uh, that the log4j library would then take and, and log, you could perform a code execution. So this sent teams into scrambling. CISA classified it as a a critical with the highest level of score uh, for for CVE, which is a, a CVSS score of, of ten, and um, everyone has been scrambling ever since to try to identify all the places where log4j is actually used and try to make sure that we're brought up to to the latest version. And the difficulty of this lies into this is a development library that's included in software packages. It's not something you can go and patch directly as an individual user. You need to go back and, and get it patched through your vendor, through whoever provides you with the software that's including the library. So we're over a month on and (laughs) from experience, I can tell you that log4j is still kind of a nuisance. And um, hackers are are definitely actively trying to use this vulnerability Uh, from from day zero. uh, We do know that there are several nation states that have been trying to use the vulnerability as well as some uh, financially motivated criminals such as ransomware actors.
0: Great recap of uh, what we've uh, experienced so far now. This is, uh, it was really apparent to me very quickly that a lot of organizations were struggling with this. So, like you said, this wasn't something you could just go patch. Uh, for those of you who uh, attend our monthly Patch Tuesday webinars, this came up very quickly. And people are like, oh, hey, how how could your solution go and patch this for me? Well, you know, sorry, we, we you can't just go and scan, um, you know, this product and patch one component of it. That vendor had to go and do that. So, in our Patch Tuesday webinars, we've actually had two cycles now where we had to um, talk about this as well. You know, trying to make sure people understand what are the vulnerabilities, how do they detect if it's in their environment or not, and really trying to you know share the information about what was working and what was not was really kind of a, a key to helping people through this particular uh, vulnerability crisis. So, so Daniel. That's that's really what we want to do next year. Is let's talk about each of the controls that we rely on in our organizations, and let's talk about you know how they, that worked against Log4j, and uh, we're actually going to share a little bit about you know how we internally responded as well to many of these controls and the ways that we helped to solve this and provide some guidance on you know other organizations, um, CISA. The Center for Internet Security, there's many other groups around the globe that have also tried to pull together some comprehensive guidance because this one was such a, uh, a tangled mess. Let's start at the very basic, software inventory, just knowing what you've got in your environment, right? Um, so software inventory is meant to go and try to detect all the software running in your environment. Now, we already talked about the critical weakness for software inventory already, and that's the fact that software inventory is looking for a piece of software not for the component parts of that software. So Daniel, that fell short pretty quick. It was, uh, I think you used the word dead on arrival
1: earlier. <laughs> yes, yes. So software inventory is, is a fantastic tool when you're trying to understand your risk in the environment. But for, for the log for j issue, yes, dead, dead on arrival comes to mind, right? Because this is a component embedded in the software. So um, n- no go there, that, that wasn't going to help against this particular issue.
0: All right. So you, you touched on this this next one already as well, but let's let's get a little bit deeper into it real quick. Patch management. There's there's over hundred and seventy thousand vulnerabilities um, identified globally at this point, somewhere around that mark. Um, I think it's a, a little bit higher than that. Even I'd have to go look at the exact numbers of what everybody's reporting today. Not all of those can be patched. In fact, what is directly patchable is uh, you know somewhere probably closer to just around 20% or right around there. Most of these vulnerabilities, there's configuration changes, there's things that have to be updated through binary updates in development um, uh, libraries, like we're talking about here. There's protocols and ports and other things that are identified in many of those vulnerabilities that you can't just go and patch. So when we say patch, Let's let's uh, put this into the category of these are the things that are easily patchable because there's also like, hey, you can go and patch SAP. They've got an update mechanism. It's very complicated and it involves multiple parts working in concert to update together and typically an entire project team who's also there to make sure that all their customizations and other things are also kept intact as that update is provided. So there's patchable and then there's project driven updates or upgrades to complex platforms right so patch management in this case uh you know daniel you touched on it already but that that failed pretty quickly here as well to be able to really solve this challenge
1: yeah we we have to remember right traditional software development is not one person uh, hacking away on a computer and and suddenly a, a a product is born right we have uh very large teams and building on top of a foundation of other components and and that's what makes vulnerability so complicated in this day and age right it's not simply is there a vulnerability in the code that a particular company has written it is is there a vulnerability in also any of the components that they rely on and can you even update those and and this doesn't apply for, for log4j necessarily but in other circumstances, there'll be cases where you know that you can update the component potentially manually, but will it break the system because there's some kind of dependency on the particular version. And and that puts the, the security team and the IT teams kind of in a weird catch-22 uh, in terms of patching. Right.
0: So let's go to the the slightly broader set then. So patching is how you resolve a number of those vulnerabilities. Let's step back into the broader vulnerability management space. So. This is a continuous process. You, you have to just constantly be assessing your environment for vulnerabilities. And we all rely on a variety of tools to do that. Now here, there was also a bit of a sore spot uh, with Log4j and how our vulnerability scanners that we rely on on a regular basis were struggling to detect this. So let's touch on that next. What made Log4j so hard to detect in these environments?
1: So the biggest challenge here, right, is Uh, log4j is implemented into a product to perform logging. And so uh, as that kind of implementation implies, it is up to how the uh, particular solution wants to write logs. And so the exploit path is find a way to influence those logs, and then you get the remote code execution. So there isn't a generic um, answer, for how to interact with a piece of software and exploit that. A lot of the very um, basic scanners were looking at things like user agent, for example, something that would be logged on a regular basis, but you know, not necessarily using log4j for logging those types of web requests. So unless the scanner knew how to emulate all the different possibilities For all the software in the world on how it might log right to a log file, then it couldn't possibly know the exploitation path. And and this is a a real challenge for the vulnerability scanners. They kept trying to come up with generic ways where they could force a log entry, but we're still finding things that those scanners are missing uh, because they just can't possibly know the context of the solution in which they're scanning.
0: You know, one of the other questions that came up from a number of people that I talked to is, hey, you know, Log4j, it's got a version number. You know, why why can't the the, the scanners just pick it up by scanning for a version as well? After after several conversations with, uh, you know, developers and uh, even Yako from your team, it, it became very clear that, yes, if you go to Apache's site, you can see, and the latest versions for each of the Java editions is out there. You know, if you want log4j for Java 8, the latest version was 2.17.1. For Java 7, it was 2.12.4. For Java 6, it was 2.3.2. If that information's there, why couldn't the scanners pick it up? Well, in this case, that jar file, they, they didn't have to put that particular jar file there with its versioning uh, information anywhere on that system. They could take that and embed it inside of another jar file they could take just the libraries that they wanted out of log4j and embed those in completely differently named jar files as well. So there was absolutely no way for traditional like file versioning to even come into play with assessing for this vulnerability.
1: Well, and just to make that a little bit more complicated, right, Chris, you you can just take out the code and and paste it into into a compiled file somewhere else. Or in, in a lot of circumstances, especially for web applications, you get uh, these, these um, bundled up WAR files, WAR web application mm-hmm. um, files that that Tomcat will run. And so um, the log4j file is actually embedded in, in there several layers deep where um, you can't even get to it from just searching your file system, right?
0: Right. That is a great shift into the next part of this conversation. Vendors and organizations that are developing, you know, whether this was part of an e-commerce platform, whatever it was built into. So your DevSecOps process uh, was very important to this and how your vendors were keeping track of what they're using, where it is, and what versions those are at became very important in people being able to respond to this. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, we'll start with the, uh, the DevSecOps process organizations that had, that, those of you who've kept up with this part of the market, there was DevOps first, then DevSecOps came later because it was trying to bring the focus around security directly into the process. So organizations that have been pushing forward and really maturing that security part of their debe- development process were better equipped to identify and respond more quickly to this. So. Daniel, your team saw a pretty big variety of uh, vendors' ability to respond to Log4j. Tell us a little bit
1: about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we have learned about some new questions that we'll be sure to add to our vendor risk management process going forward. And and honestly, we're we're getting into the point of the conversation where things are starting to take a good turn, right? If an organization is sophisticated enough to be performing scans against their, their software and libraries and, and they're generating an SBOM, a software bill of materials, then you're going to get a really good response from that vendor pretty quickly on whether or not they're using that software. And, and that's been very beneficial. For those of you who went through the process of, of reaching out to your vendors, if you got a quick answer from them, you know, less than 24, less than 48 hours, that means that they had a, a tool in place to generate that, that bill of materials and quickly check the, the version and see whether or not they were affected. That's great news. There is a bit of a caveat here. Um, there is some customization that you could have done to log4j for the initial vulnerability, uh, which would have rendered previously reported versions as um, that were reported as unaffected as being actually affected by this vulnerability. Um, and so you know, if you just relied on your S-bomb, uh and didn't do any due diligence because you checked off on the version number uh, you you may have still missed something. <laughs> so that's an important lesson to learn it It still required hands on keyboard. but if you knew hey, not using log for j, it's a pretty good indication that y- you could you can move on to the next risk
0: that that kind of brings up the that importance of uh, continuing to increase the the security in your development processes, whether you're a vendor, you know, like Avanti, or whether you're developing solutions internally or for you know uh, uh, your your customer facing part of your business, that security part of that really does help to close gaps when a vulnerability like Log4j comes along. And in fact, when we talk a little bit about uh, the the latest guidance here, we'll kind of wrap with that uh, in just a minute here. That is one of the things that saved a lot of companies from having to to really guess at whether or not they're they're secure. So that was a a critical part of that. One other thing that Daniel, I think you mentioned uh, in some of our conversations that really helped here was technologies like IPS and IDS. And if you were able to put together um, sophisticated enough rules, you could actually mitigate a lot of that upfront risk while you were taking the time to go and do the due diligence to figure out how exposed you were?
1: So so we have to remember that a lot of internet-facing applications do use Java, and therefore Log4J was a very serious risk for that. You had a, a sophisticated enough solution in the front end, or, and or you had a sophisticated enough in, a internal security team, there were rules you could write with these engines to help you know, detect um, particular strings and block them. Uh, the, this magical JNDI uh, string, which is very key to how the vulnerability actually works, is something that you could look for coming uh, from the internet into your your web-facing servers uh, and then block it. The trick here is writing a complex enough rule and having a solution that can actually handle a complex enough rule A lot of uh, IPS IDSs out there don't give you full access to their capabilities. And in doing so really hurt teams because uh, they can't do the necessary evaluations against the input to to make sure that they understand it. So uh, an example is if you look for JNDI all lowercase, well, I can just put it all in uppercase or I can do camel case or I can do alternative casing. Uh, But there's also some really complex things you can do where you eventually evaluate the string to be JNDI after several revisions and still get code execution. And the less sophisticated platforms really didn't give um, defenders the capabilities to to do that work. One of the the basic free tools that were available though was um, mod security through Apache. Uh, on your Apache web servers is actually very successful and being able to write something very quickly that could do an evaluation post um, you know getting through a- encoding and, and some of the different evasion techniques you can do and then actually block those strings. But the other the other weakness here, you you have to have a team internally sophisticated enough and familiar enough to use those tools and you have to have them in place. Uh, if they're not already already set up to do that, then th- this wasn't really a good option for the the organization as well. So this was this is a great option for the the top tier organizations in the world who had the necessary tool sets and the necessary people.
0: Perfect. Okay, so we're going to wrap on uh, talking about some of the the latest guidance that's available. And there's a couple more things, the tidbits that uh, we'll bring up as we go through that. You know, so for those of you in the U.S. market, you'll be familiar with the CISA cisa.gov they have a very comprehensive write up there's a similar one uh you know for those on the the global scape for the center for internet security so ci-security.org also has a very comprehensive write up they are the two closest that i've seen out there and the probably the two best there are other groups that are are that have good information as well but these are two great resources they broke it down like this there was guidance for organizations and we touched on a few of the technologies already, but they provided a list, uh, you know, on GitHub or you know, a couple of other places that were collecting these lists of all the common vendors that are out there and aggregating the information about how they've assessed and uh, made that information available in one central place. So this quickly became a very strong tool for helping with that that vendor risk approach to identifying if Log4j was in your environment. The other thing. And Daniel, I loved your story about how you guys uh, uh, took an early approach to this additional scanning to get around the the limitation of network scanners, but a a breed of Log4j-specific scanners quickly came into being as this was developing. And I I think it was only a couple of days after you guys already took your scripted approach that I saw a couple of um, scanners that really got down to the level of depth that you were talking about with being able to recurse through... And look for this in multiple ways, because it was it was that elusive for for common scanners to get at. So let's let's talk about those scanners real quick. And how did you guys go about utilizing that type of additional complementary scanning approach in our environments?
1: When we realized how difficult it was going to be to identify this issue, and when we we started going through very much the same exercise, Chris, that you and I are talking about, and realizing that those solutions just um, that we typically rely on weren't going to work, we had to think a little bit outside the box. And that's when we came up with coming with a, a, our own scanner very quickly and in, in short order. What was very key here is having an endpoint management solution that uh, we, could, we could push a script to. And so, of course, internally, we're using uh, Avanti EPM and Avanti Neurons. But any solution you know will work for these kind of uh, custom scanners, as long as you have a place to put the results and aggregate them, and so we we use the solution there. And, and our first iteration of this uh, used a, a combination of file names and um, a combination of hashes. So one of the things that that we made a, a safe bet on was that no one's going to change the log 4 J libraries too much, um, if at all, because um, They are already a development library. They're fully functioning and and kind of self-contained. So um, hashing any of the files that we found under the size threshold that those libraries would be at and comparing them against the known vulnerable hashes allowed us to get there very quickly. Um, Our second iteration made us realize, uh, similar to what we were talking about with WAR files, that we had missed those. And so we had to add functionality to our tool to identify those files and decompress them, and then look for the the JAR file in there. And a lot of the scanners are are taking similar approaches. They're either using hashes or or names or some combination thereof to try to find the log4j libraries local on the system. And and truthfully, this is probably the the most effective way of really finding uh, that a a network scan approach is, is simply ineffective.
0: Yeah, and uh, you'll you'll see that. So, um, if you want to to get a collection of the references that we've just made here in the last couple of minutes, my blog post for our January Patch Tuesday blog captured all of this in in that write up, and it's got links to to CISA, to CIS, um, Apache, and several others to be able to quickly get to the, some of this information. But they they recommended that combination of the vendor assessment and these types of scanning tools to really most effectively tackle this. And those companies that are feeling confident about how well they responded, definitely took that approach uh, in their environments. You know, in wrapping up, Daniel, I I think this vulnerability, you know, showed when, uh, you know, not all vulnerabilities are created equal. This one wasn't able to be solved by some of our more regular common tools and uh, methods that we use. Um, It kind of showed an extreme case. To have to respond to not only was it an out of band but it required us to use several different methods to be able to do upfront mitigation and long-term remediation of this vulnerability that i think if you look back on this and do a post-mortem in your own organization about this you'll find a number of ways that you can benefit uh, your organization by putting a couple of things onto your your security roadmap for 2022 and beyond so it was a painful but I think a very good litmus test for most organizations' security programs. On that, uh, Daniel, I guess, any closing thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think I'd like to throw out two. Um, so, so first, um, a, a shout out to two organizations, uh, NCSC in the Netherlands, who uh, took really early action in trying to gather information from vendors and putting it in a single spot using a GitHub page for defenders to identify the status of products, whether they were vulnerable or not. That was very helpful for defenders and definitely um, please make sure you're you're working closely with such organizations. The other one, ACSC, who actually released information about the exploitation of the Log4J vulnerability and, and one of the the only organizations to really go out of their way to provide post exploitation information to defenders. And then the last thing I just want to say, obviously we took a very corporate centric approach to this conversation, but if you would like to know more about uh, Avanti's response for our products, check in the description below and and we'll leave a link there so that you can learn more about our response. Thanks,
0: Daniel. And thank you everyone for joining us for 2022's first Avanti podcast episode. We're looking forward to a great year and uh, lots more content coming your way. Thank you.